0: Actually, my wife uh, was on Zenni Optical the other day, and they've got a really neat uh, try glasses on virtually. And the final step is hold a credit card against your face. <laughs> because that gives them the scale perfectly. Like, scale, a credit yeah. card is a credit card.
1: And also, yeah, sure. it gives them their, your credit card number.
2: <laughs> it's just a scam to get your credit card yeah. number. It has nothing to do with the eyeglasses. <laughs> then you get your identity stolen in a couple of months' time.
0: Yeah. I tricked them with my scuba diving card. Uh, Clever. Ever Maybe the there's skeptic, someone yeah. scuba diving under your ID right yeah. now. <laughs> they can go um, eaten by a shark, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe let's give good. COVID to that
1: shark. Hi everyone, I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And I'm really happy to have a, a very good friend of mine on for today's guest. Uh, he's a former business partner, former and I guess sort of current business partner. But I've also experienced watching him go through the, the throes of agony and joy of running a, a startup, um, which inspired me to, to go uh, to go ahead with Stack, um, curiously enough, once you hear the story. But uh Today, we have Art Hare joining us, who's, um, as I said, a, a colleague and a partner of mine, but also someone I have a huge amount of respect for in terms of what he's been able to accomplish with, with programming. Um, he is also the brains behind the, uh, well, all of the stack trainers, um, as well as the four eyes flight trainer, yeah. which has an incredible amount of development that's gone into it. And that's uh, hopefully going to be a future episode as well, just talking about some of the technological breakthroughs and and innovation that he put towards making that work. But uh, Art, welcome
0: to the show. Thank you. It's nice talking to people during the pandemic.
1: (laughs) That's something that we're all appreciating. It feels, um, well, this virtual conversation feels like the closest we can actually get to interaction with people right now. Yeah. So uh, very quickly, why don't you give us a quick background of of yourself um, and maybe talking about Tour de Jiro, which is the main reason Mm -hmm. that we wanted to talk to you today.
0: Okay, um, so I went to the University of Waterloo, same school as Andrew, graduated in 2008, and uh, got a job at the place he'd worked at for my last co-op, which was Sony. Um, some of the listeners may have heard of it. And we, uh, So I was just developing, essentially, Sony's answer to iTunes. It was called MediaGo. It was a Windows application. It organized your music, and I generally did uh, file decoding, video decoding, video display uh, shuffling bits around kind of not very visual stuff, but you work at a place for four or five years, you start getting a lot of experience. And then at home, I was starting to get into triathlons. So, uh, during the very long winter season though, it's like, I'm a competitive guy. I want to race against other people. Well, what's out there? Uh, there wasn't a lot. So this is 2012. Uh, Zwift was just a twinkle in John Mayfield's eye. Um, <laughs> We later found out that there was another game called Nitathlon, but there just weren't that many people playing it. Um, And there was just really no way for you to go on and say, okay, I want to go race some random person online, get a good workout, have a lot of motivation. Uh, And I had just gotten a power tap power meter that had Ant Plus. And I was Googling around and it turned out that the Ant Plus uh, specification was publicly available. So you could go to thisisant.com and sign up And grab the Windows drivers to talk to an it Plus stick, and you could actually talk to your power meter. And then, once you have a watts input, it's really easy to make it like a simple little biking simulation. And then I was curious, okay, well, could I make this into a networked game? Could I make this into an internet networked game? So it started out; it was just going to be this open source goofy thing uh, where you could race people online. There'd be a server. You could click go, and off you like race with five or six other people or 10 or 20. Uh, I always tried to aim to have the server work with 200 simultaneous connections, uh, and you could have a race of some length and at the end, it would tell you who won and that's all I wanted.
1: So it was really this initial need. Um, like there was nothing that you knew of at the time. There's nothing popular online to get this big group of people and to get your competitive spirit out there.
0: Yeah, individual manufacturers, I think, had a few, but they were always locked to their equipment. So if you had a CompuTrainer, then you could do head-to-head racing against in someone in the same location, uh, and I think there were a few hacks out there where you could do uh, like a networked race over uh, the same manufacturer's equipment. I think tax had a few things, but again, it was locked to tax equipment, and From customers that Tour de Giro eventually had who came to us from the tax side of things, Uh, they all said that generally it was just dead. There wasn't enough people there. So you end up not getting the virtuous feedback loop of having people online. So then it's always fun to hop on and do a race. And then more people want to sign up and tell your friends. and uh, So kind of like the whole social media feedback loop of everyone wants to be on Facebook because everyone's on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you needed to achieve and it seemed that all the uh, apps that were locked to a single manufacturer uh, didn't tend to achieve that level of popularity and so they didn't kind of snowball into bigger and bigger things
1: So it was maybe the competitive protectionism that ultimately led to the problems that they had and in my mind I'm thinking of like the VHS Betamax uh, battle that uh, that happened possibly before many of our users or listeners were born, but um, that was something that I I believe was locked down by a patent and that patent resulted in this new format, VHS, which was inferior in many ways, but it was created uh, to replace Betamax because they just weren't allowed to compete without paying exorbitant fees. At least that's my understanding of it.
0: Yeah. If I remember correctly, the uh, jerks, there were the holdouts on the Betamax patent and not licensing it broadly were my uh, friends at Sony.
1: Oh, perfect. That's a nice time.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was, it was Sony's patent, as I recall. You're right. Yep.
1: <laughs> That's a little Easter egg that I didn't expect or didn't think of. Um, yeah, so you, you saw this need and you saw this uh, opportunity for creating this online network. Um, and then obviously with the power meter technology becoming more ubiquitous, um, it was still quite expensive at the time, I believe, but it was becoming more and more common. And you saw an ability to hook up your bike to your computer, basically. Um, so what, uh, what, I guess, what went through your mind at that point, you talked about having this open source goofy platform, but how did it develop into an actual game?
0: Uh, well, you just, I kind of went at it as any programmer approaches a problem, which is you break it into tiny problems. So first it's like, okay, can I talk to my power tap and get my current Watts reading and just spit on the screen? Oh, okay. I did that. Well, next up, I want to be able to transmit that power reading to my server computer, and then have that transmit from two computers simultaneously, so that the server can see. Okay, Art's doing two hundred watts. Andrew's doing two hundred and fifty watts. Um, and then, if once the server has,
1: for the record, that, yeah, that's that didn't happen often. <laughs> it was usually the other way around.
0: Um, but then, once the server has uh, the ability to see what everyone's watts are, then it can start doing a simulation. So writing a bike racing simulation isn't that difficult because you just kind of say, okay, well, what's what's everyone's position on the road? How fast are they going? How much do they weigh? What's the grade? But that's all grade 11 and 12 physics to just make your cyclist uh, point, accelerate or decelerate as appropriate given the Watts input. So the next step is, okay, now you've got the simulation, you've got it networked so that people can join. Okay, well, now I have to figure out how to put it on the internet. Um, just so happened that one of my colleagues at Sony had been talking about this online server system called Linode, uh, which is basically the same as AWS. Um, so I went and fired up a Linode, and sure enough, I could run my server on that, and then I could connect to it from my house and Andrew's house. So now we're like, now we're nearly racing. Uh, and then you have to make graphics. Um, so,
1: that was your favorite part, right?
0: Yeah. I, As anyone who's ever worked with me will tell you, I just don't have an eye for visual greatness. I can tell you when something's ugly, but then I just uh, generally can't make it look better. Or I can make it slightly look better, but not nearly as well as, say, a professional graphic designer. And that's because a lot of my experience at work had been just shuffling the bits around in the background as efficiently as possible. Um, so, yeah, you start in the graphics. and. It takes a long time. You need to generate a lot of content. Um, You need to make 3D models of the cyclists. You need to make those animate. You need trees. You need the road to get laid out. And one of the big challenges is actually laying out the road because in Tour de Giro, you could uh, upload a GPS trace of any ride you ever did, and it would build a 3D world with a road, and that road would trace out the shape of your GPS trace. But this means that if... If you did a uh, switchback, a really tight switchback, back and forth, back and forth, uh, Tour de Juro would draw a 10 or 15-meter-wide road doing your switchback. Well, probably your switchback wasn't a 10 or 15-meter-wide road, and so you'd end up with roads on top of each other. Um, GPS doesn't give the greatest elevation readings, so sometimes you'd have a plus or minus 10-meter dip out of nowhere and have to do a 200% grade. (laughs) But... uh, it was eternally a challenge trying to smooth out all the input GPS traces because people could just upload anything from any of their devices. So you needed to smooth it all out, and but not smooth it out too much because, like, maybe there's a strategically important short sharp climb that's a key part of the ride that they want to do. And if that's not included in the game, then they'll be like, "Hey, where's where's my short sharp climb? That's like the main thing in this race." Um, so yeah, graphics. Uh, challenging and remained a challenge. Um, if anyone, tour still exists. Uh, it was written before I was a web developer, so I didn't really know what I was doing. Please don't judge me on it. But um, the graphics in the game were never stealth. Um, and an interesting side bit is in 2012, in the fall of 2012, on slowtwitch.com, on their forums, there were five or six different guys all just like hawking their uh, electronic training game thing. So you'd have, uh, I think, Perf Pro and me, and a few others. And amongst them, there was a post by John Mayfield who had made this really cool-looking kind of prototypey thing with amazing graphics, uh, at least compared to everyone else's efforts and all the manufacturers' efforts. And uh, I doubt the video is still up. Maybe it maybe it was a YouTube. Maybe it's still up. Um, but it like you would recognize it today as, oh, that's Swift, because that's what it was. Like he had started out, or this is my assumption. I don't know how the whole Swift story went, but I assume he started out. He was a game developer. He'd worked in the games industry for I think 10 years. And he started out on the graphics, and he knew stuff about game engines. He knew how to get assets and model them and all that. So Swift, from the beginning, near as I can tell, was very pretty graphics. And the other thing is in that Twitch thread, if you scroll on down, you will see a post by A. Hair saying, oh, you should add multiplayer to this. That'd be amazing. (laughs) So that may have been right around the time when I was like, oh, I should. Well, if he's not gonna, I'm going to go make my own multiplayer bike racing game. And I started on my strengths, which was, okay. I can do networking and move the bits around efficiently and make a server that works efficiently and do the math for all the physics um and so tier de zero like you could play it December 2012 ish
1: yeah and it was it was very interesting from my perspective seeing the iterations of it come through because you would develop something and then add new scenery or add clouds or, or something different to the the graphics um, but I from my recollection the gameplay stayed pretty consistent like the the, the physics are fairly defined and you you did a very good job of replicating that um so it it felt very realistic and you would get this uh very definite draft effect and um the i I never really used it with a smart trainer but i know that um i think there was one time i used it with a comfy trainer and i think that was when i borrowed your bike and i ended up blowing up the uh the tube on it but um yeah it, it seemed very very realistic like it was um it was a neat application of physics to video games basically
0: yeah so around that time okay you've got this game it's networked you've got a website you've got a server you can join fun um and it was fun enough that a friend of mine uh eric gregg had said oh well you should actually try and make a business out of this like this is an actual product that people will want and he ran a copy trainer studio at the time and he would actually have people even with the awful, awful graphics at the time, um, he had people that were like, they'd be upset if Tour de Jure was broken that week because, I don't know, I was updating the server or the server went down. Um, and so he could start seeing, oh, this is a thing that people will actually pay for. So why don't, why don't we join together? And he knew how to kind of do all the business side of things like get a bank account, make sure we're paying taxes, uh, talk to people, which is not often something I always want to do. Um, and he would get feedback from users and tell, say, "Okay, you should, we should. This should be our next attack. We should like add this feature or this feature. Try and make the graphics less sucky, um, etc." And so that was kind of the next stage. Was December ish 2012. We said, "Okay, we're actually trying to make a business out of this." Um, and we made a website and you start advertising to people um he had his computer trainer studio so we could get exposure and feedback from people as uh the game got a bit better and then i think i don't actually remember when we actually turned on like people having to pay but it was probably fall 2013-ish once we'd had a lot of time like a bunch of time to test but keep in mind through all of this uh eric who's not a developer like he was just doing all of the administrative tasks of which never underestimate how many administrative tasks there are in a business uh, and I was doing all the development, all in our spare time. But it's kind of the fun part of doing the development before you have any customers and you think, wow, this is like a neat challenge. And I'm doing something I'm interested interested in. Uh, and then you finally open the gates and you've got, you've got some paying customers, like people are actually buying this. And uh, maybe I'll go find uh, my records and see how much money did we make that first season because it was not a lot.
1: So the, the disadvantage of paying customers, though, is that um, when you pay for something, you have an expectation. Yes. Um, and that is the one of the first challenges, I would assume, that you really face.
0: Uh, I think initially our first customers are friendlier. like They see that it's rough around the edges, uh, and maybe they followed us from our very earliest days on our Facebook page or from our initial slow Twitch posts. Um, And so kind of like we found at Stack as well, it's like, okay, the earliest customers, the ones who like maybe just like you uh, are friendlier. But then as you get to people that don't know you or haven't followed your story and are just there to purchase a lump of online racing, uh, then, yeah, they start having higher standards and it starts becoming a bit of a treadmill to uh, achieve those standards.
2: Is this is this like is this like a uh, <clears throat> a foreshadowing of uh, of uh, TDG's progress from then on?
0: Uh, well, we actually made throughout so summer 2013. It's just a lot of development. We changed. We actually got an open source game engine um, called Ogre, and that made for a pretty big upgrade in the graphics. But again, they were still described as like, "Hey, this game looks like late 90s kind of era." Um, but that's still a significant improvement from what was described as before Ogre. Um, but it's also worth highlighting how the games industry has changed a bit at that point. Because in 2013, I did look at the professional game engines. So Unity, Unreal um, were still not free. Um, I believe both of them these days, they have a pretty nice licensing agreement where it's like, Free or very, very inexpensive up until you make your millionth dollar of revenue, and then they start taking like five or ten percent. Um, which is very friendly if you're starting out, then you get like a real game engine with a lot of really good tools and support and community. Um, and so we considered that, but at the time it was like, okay, well, after a couple months of having this thing for free, we're not getting that much traction. Like maybe a couple hundred people have signed up, maybe we see get five or six people at a race on a given night. Um, But it was, to us, quote-unquote, obvious that there wasn't a lot of money in online bug racing. Huh. 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 Oh. So we were like, eh, we don't want to buy a Unity license for a 1000 bucks or whatever it cost at the time.
1: For for my own understanding, um, and probably for a lot of other people, what is involved in a game engine? Like, what does that provide you? Because presumably, like, you don't just start from scratch and program every single thing that happens in there.
0: Yeah, so Tour de Zero up until we switched to Ogre, basically like every pixel on screen was ri- uh, was rendered by like a raw OpenGL call that I wrote, um, which is not long lasting. Like you always want to use the right tool for the job, and so what a game engine does is uh, it gives you a bunch of tools uh, that allow you to have an animated guy or uh, a tree that maybe. Goes down in detail as it gets further away from the camera, rather than you having to manually write the algorithm that makes the tree go lower in detail as it gets further from the camera. Um, Ogre included a nice terrain engine, so you would give it kind of the overall shape of the terrain that you wanted, and then it would uh, interpolate a bit, so it was smoothened out, and it would also hide chunks of terrain that were out of screen. Um, so at the end of the day, if you like, if you're using a proper game engine, which again you should always use the right tool for the job, uh, you get a faster running, better tested, runs on more devices, cross-platform, usually, uh, game, rather than one hand-coded on Windows at the very low level, which will never in a thousand years be able to port to a Mac. So that's usually what you get for the game engine, and then like the really nice ones like Unity, Unreal, uh, you get all these tools that help you manage your assets and package it into an executable file for Windows or for Mac, or uh, sometimes even like, you can just slap it right into a phone game. Obviously there's a lot of other UI changes that you have to make when you're going across platforms, but uh, it means your core game logic and maybe your core game graphics don't have to change as much uh, because you're using this tool that someone else has dumped millions, well, hundreds of thousands of hours of engineering time into, rather than you having to write it all from scratch. So, we moved moved to the better game engine, free, we were still quite cheap, uh, and then yeah, fall 2013 happened, and what we found was, we're like, I think we made like a thousand bucks a month-ish for the first couple months of fall, and the way that Tour de Giro build was, uh, I didn't want to have people on recurring billing, because I was like, oh, but what if they forget, and then we take money, but then they don't ride, that would be bad, so, uh, we just had one-time billing. You would buy one month or three months or six months or a year at a time. Uh, and that would just get credited to your account. And then you would ride like that. So it also meant that all, our, all of our revenue was very front-loaded through the fall. Uh, so you'd get October, maybe 1000 bucks, And then November would be like 2000 bucks, And then December would be like 500 bucks, um, Because people would just buy their six months for the season and then not have to buy any more. Uh, so, yeah, fall 2013, it's kind of exciting. People are signing up. People are paying us for stuff. This is cool. Um, at about the same time, I'd started astronomy as a hobby because one of my Sony colleagues had gotten the telescope, and I'd always thought, ah, I can't see anything from the city, but it turns out you can. So generally, um, because we thought, "Ah, oh, this is just a hobby project for beer money, we'd take our profits, and I would go to the telescope store, and I'd buy myself a fun telescope part. But that was kind of the the scale of money that we're making. It's like, okay, you can go buy yourself a nice luxury, but I'm not buying a car. You're not quitting your job. Like my Sony paychecks still vastly dwarfed my Tour de Juro paychecks. So uh, still part-time. And, you know, the outlook is, uh, this is kind of fun to do. Uh, we're making some money. I can buy myself a nice telescope. But it doesn't look like we're going to be quitting our jobs and becoming millionaires or having like a hundred million dollar valued startup anytime soon with this industry. Sad trombone.
2: (laughs) We can put (laughs) that in post. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And of course all this time you're like, you're kind of worried that, well, we seemed to be the first people that had done kind of the cross device, cross manufacturer, um, if you had something that would emit an Ant Plus power meter or a CompuTrainer, which we also supported, uh, then you could play Tour de Zero, and that was seemingly unique at the time. Uh, no one else seemed to have something that actually had regular races and regular people riding.
1: And if I remember correctly, at the time, CompuTrainer was the really the only smart trainer out there uh, because this was pre or just at the the time that the Wahoo kicker was being released. And I don't think there was anything yes. else. Was there?
2: Uh, tax had a couple of products out there that were smart ish. You know, they were the, I'm, I, I know there were definitely ones that would put out power. I'm not wondering if they were fully smart, if they act, you can actually get variable.
0: Yeah, tax tax had a bunch. Uh, tax had a bunch, but they were generally locked to a private Tax ant plus channel which was a thing that you could do um the kicker like the big thing about the kicker was it was like it was the open trainer it would use open protocols and it did actually uh no their BLE protocol is still kind of weird but they would give you an sdk that would work on windows or mac or iphone uh to talk to the kicker so um and that was summer 2013 so i actually uh just before we started i was trying to just kind of get my dates in order and I have a picture on my Facebook from 20, uh, summer 2013 where I had just taken delivery of my kicker, which I still have. Although its optical sensor broke, uh, we got it repaired. And so it actually still works these days. Nice. It's very loud. Very, very loud. Um, but yeah, so the kicker had just come out. And oddly, Wahoo didn't actually come out with any uh, kind of, of their own racing software, which we thought was a little weird. But hey, it's like they're really plug-in indoor training. That's good for us if everyone's buying a Wahoo Kicker. Um, we also did have a business relationship with CompuTrainer um, that prevented us from directly supporting the Kicker for a long time. But we would still like you'd be able to use its power meter signal. There's another uh, partial mistake, which is the CompuTrainer relationship helped us a lot. Like they they would get us some advertising and plug us. And we were at their interbike booth in 2013 as like kind of their big thing. Uh, but they were like the first manufacturer that even talked to us. Eric just cold called them and said, Hey, we have this online racing game. Do you want to talk to us? And they flew out like the next weekend. It was really neat. Cool.
1: I didn't, I didn't realize that it actually happened that way. I thought it was just some conversations that you had had that led to this.
0: Nope. Nope. Eric, Eric just cold called them at FlowScan and said, hi. CompuTrainer guys, we have this thing and it works with your uh, device and would you like to talk about it some more? And they flew over and they said, hey, yeah, we can do like some sort of marketing support for you guys. uh, And we'll make sure that your support for us is splendid. So we were one of the first people that got uh, the official CompuTrainer DLLs uh, basically the same as the Wahoo SDK. So they gave us a little package that let us talk to the CompuTrainer in the officially manufacturer supported way. Um, for the longest time, most, wi- uh, most apps would talk to the computer trainer using this backward and reverse-engineered thing that the creator of Golden Cheetah made, um, which is a really impressive piece of code and is very widely used. Uh, but we got to talk to the computer trainer. We could trigger, trigger calibration um, and do a few other things that, like the reverse-engineered one, couldn't do because once they figured out kind of the happy path of getting the power out. And telling it to do certain gradients, then it didn't matter as much. To do all these, like do trigger a spin down, trigger a calibration, things like that.
1: So that's really the the full, the, I guess, the full compatibility that you had there really smooths out the the whole experience, user experience that your customers would have.
0: Yeah, and I guess while we were saying that Thirty Zero's graphics sucked, its user interface was a little questionable. Um, so it was just. I wouldn't say it's hard. Like you could get into a race really fast if you knew which buttons to click, but it certainly was a a non-standard pile of buttons that you had to click through. So uh, that was probably another, like another hurdle for new users to get through is like, okay, well, what button do I click here? I have to select this and then it tries to detect. uh, But yes, if uh, there's any young entrepreneurs listening to this, um, make sure your thing's really slick and really easy to use. Uh, that is a huge lesson learned uh, from my Tour de Giro experience.
2: So in working with Trainers so closely, you mentioned that you had, uh, you know, in, in exchange for all of their all of their support and their, you know, the, the access to their, their trainers from the software side. Um, did you limit yourself in any way by, you know, not then being able to support, as you mentioned, Wahoo and the everyone else who f- soon flooded the market?
0: Well, I think around the time that I got that kicker, like at one point we did have kicker support and then we got an angry email from them saying, ar, ar, all that we've done for you and you have kicker support. And it's like, okay, so we had, So I think for one see, they had like one season exclusivity or something. Um, but like if you had a kicker, you could still use it as power meter, but that would obviously give us lots of people complaining because it's like, hey, I have this kicker and I can only use it as a power meter. Light yeah.
2: It was like the point where where CompuChainer yeah. stopped being the only game in town, right? Like they were, as Andrew said, for years and years.
0: It, it was just yeah. that point. And it was, yeah. you
2: know, it's a, you know yeah. from a business perspective, I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of all you know as a as a user or as a software designer in this space is like, you know, CompuChainer is the only, the only product out there that you can use. You know, it, it would have been impossible to forecast the you know, the, the, the device explosion at that point.
0: Yeah. I I think, I think at the time we knew that the kicker was coming, but it's like, geez, these guys are copy (laughs) trainer. They've been around for like 30 years. Um, Their devices are bomb proof. Like generally people liked their trainers. They were good devices and that like wired connection to your computer. I was
2: going to, I was I was going to pitch my computer up, my computer camera up so that you could see the fact that my bike's connected to a trainer, which is probably like 15 years old and still ticking. Uh, but then I knocked over my mic and everything and that's, you know, yeah. <laughs> Lesson learned.
0: But yeah, it's like they, they were the big dog in town. Essentially you could, you could tell that Wahoo was going for a really big push with a kicker. Like it, it looked slick. Their advertising campaign was slick. Um, one thing that was kind of funny was they were very iPhone locked initially. So I actually had to go to a friend's house to use his iPhone because only the very newest iPhones could do a firmware update. Uh, only the very newest iPhones at that point had BLE. So that gives you an idea of what how different the wireless environment was as well, is that BLE was this thing that was only available on the latest, greatest iPhones. Rather than right now, where BLE is on like, it's on your Raspberry Pi, it's on your cheap $50 checkout line phone, uh, you can generally just assume that, okay, BLE is basically everywhere. Whereas back then it was, oh man, I have to go to my friend's house to like borrow his phone to use this weird Bluetooth protocol. So it's like, okay, Ant Plus was king, uh, Computrainer was king, and that was only seven years ago.
1: Yeah, well,
0: Ant Plus is still a great protocol, but. It's probably not the most prominent anymore.
1: Yeah, it's definitely been an interesting change in terms of all the, the wireless environment we have. And I know you and I see it a lot at work, Art, with um, dealing with, well, you deal with it more than I do, but the, uh, the prevalence of AMP Plus versus uh, most people are connecting with Bluetooth now to head units or to various devices, or even when I run Trainer Road on my phone. Um, but that will be all Bluetooth connections because there are very few phone, phones that actually support the AMP Plus protocol.
0: Yeah, the uh, the fact that like just about every phone has Bluetooth nowadays and just about no phones have Ant Plus means that if you're making an app these days, it's like you'd probably target Bluetooth first. You'd make sure that your Bluetooth support is really, really good because it's generally only going to be on Windows PCs or Samsung phones. That you're gonna really encounter a lot of Ant Plus, and on the Sam in the Samsung phone case, you, like you still have the Bluetooth connection there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, I know that at Stack we really like, we really liked Ant Plus because of a couple weird uh, features of the Bluetooth communication protocol. Mainly, uh, you can only connect one thing at a time to your device until quite recently.
1: That, that is an interesting point, because uh, when you look at the studio environment, if you've got uh, eight or 10 devices, then it can get quite noisy with the Ant Plus signals going out there. But um, with Bluetooth, like it noisy in terms of finding which device you're actually connected to, because if you've got eight trainers that have an Ant ID that has no real correlation to what they look like, it's not like you know Arts Kicker or Arts Stack Halcyon. Or something like that, um, it would be a five digit number that was very difficult to interpret. So I remember some of the challenges with trying to set up these devices or even power meters. And it was it was a bit frustrating. Um, but Bluetooth, I know you can name the devices, and the the nice thing is that they get locked in, but the downside is that if it's connected to something, you can't find it. <laughs> and we had a lot of a lot of customers who had that issue early on at Stack.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm thankful that Tour de Zero because we were Ant Plus only. Um, we didn't have to deal with the Bluetooth only one connection allowed problem, because yeah, the Ant Plus problem is mainly if you know what your Ant ID is, and I think I still remember what my PowerTap's old Ant ID was from having to enter it so many times. Um, if you remember what your Ant ID was, then it was just like you pound it in, click set. Okay, if you're connected, and off you go. Whereas, yeah, with Bluetooth. Oops, I forgot to turn off trainer out of my phone now my Bluetooth channel is monopolized and now I can't search for it period it's just not advertising um, until you figure out which other app is talking to it so yeah uh, I don't know both, both connection protocols have have their thing but more importantly just back in 2013 ant plus was the way to be or a wired connection from your CompuTrainer. trainer and you could see that okay the kickers on the horizon. But it's, I don't think it had launched yet. By I, uh, I think it launched like fall 2013. Um, so we got our customers and they're riding and we have a couple, uh, uh, you get a couple like CompuTrainer studios because we had really good CompuTrainer support and they'd sign up and it'd be great because a Trainer studio means that generally when they sign up, you get eight people showing up to ride, which then makes that race pretty attractive to anyone else who's wanting to join. So if you see, like, hey, this Trainer studio is scheduled to ride for 7 p.m. on Tuesday, well, you know you want to join that one because they're going to have a whole bunch of people, and then you join, and everyone else is going to get together. So, again, it's that virtuous cycle. If you can guarantee a certain amount of people riding, then more people are going to join, and uh, it becomes more fun. So usually uh, Tuesday nights just kind of organically became race nights. And you'd get up to maybe 40 people on a given race. So you do a 40K race with 40 other people. And that's nothing compared to what Zwift does. If you go on the Zwift event list, like every 15 minutes, there'll be a new event with 100 people signed up for it. So like we were still small beans, but we were pretty proud of our 40 person races. And uh, in later years, we'd get up to two 40 person races running simultaneously. Uh, which again, we are pretty proud of. Like, hey, this is like serious growth over last year. Um, but again, we're talking such small dollars compared to uh, what indoor cycling has become.
1: Uh, one of the interesting points I wanted to bring up actually was the fact that being involved in these races, it would be the same group generally of 40 people. So it's like, I know this guy attacks late on in the race, or I know this guy's strategy. And it was a bit of a mind game that you could get into with some of these people. And it was, really fun and then the effects of drafting were so realistic that you were able to play these games like slingshotting past people or attacking over the top of the hill or something like that
0: yeah that, that was a neat aspect to it was because we were fairly small like i think we peaked at we would have peaked at something like 250 to 300 active paid subscribers uh and paying like 10 bucks a month um and so because you had a relatively small set of people, you actually got to know everybody because like 300, 250 active subscribers means that, okay, well, maybe half of them actually ride, say every Tuesday ride. Um, so yeah, you would get to know that the personalities behind them. And we had, we had race comments. So your race results would go up on zero.com and then people would comment and like chit chat and yell at each other and accuse each other of cheating. Um, because it's the good internet. good see some things haven't changed. Yeah. Um, guaranteed, everyone that's not you is cheating, <laughs> always. But it, it, it was interesting that it was just this small little bubble of people, because one thing I find is if I go on Zwift for a race, it's really nice that they've got races every 15 minutes, and you can pick your handicap level so that you're with people that are theoretically the same as you. Um, but I find because I don't know any of these people. like They're all just anonymous. It's like you're just racing in this crowd of anonymous people whereas in tour de giro is like oh i really want to beat this guy because he got me last week but i know how he got me last week so i'm going to trick him and go a bit earlier attack up this hill or um yeah you just um i find if you're racing the public at least the public races on zwift it's like yeah they're all a bunch of strangers i don't have this emotional connection to like trying to beat one particular person so that, that was something that's different, but it's probably, I can't imagine how you would recapture it when you're at the scale that Zwift is.
1: Unless you had like race groups or race classes or something.
0: I
2: think that's what people end up doing is that they have clubs or, you know, or yeah. you race, you know, you race your buddies because you can, you can, with Zwift, you can do meetups, right? So you can do kind of like a, it's not a formal event that anyone can join, but you know, you, the three of us can do a meetup on Zwift and then just race each other. And then that's what, you know, that's how it works with them. So it's, yeah, it, it can be done.
0: You can tell that I'm not a super avid Zwift user. Like, We monitored them from the Tour de Zero world, but then once we were burned out, it's like, I don't really <laughs> want to ride a virtual race. Or we'd keep using Tour de Zero because it still worked.
1: So there were a couple interesting features that you had actually added early on that took a long time for Zwift to replicate, and some of them they don't even have yet. Um, so the ones that come to mind initially are scheduled races because it took a long time for Zwift to do that. Um, you had a workout mode that was... Um, Pretty like the the interface uh, ended up working out really well. The ability to set up your workouts was a little more challenging, but um, there was that, uh, and there was also these AIs that you could add to a race. So you could do a race on your own with a bunch of different AIs of varying levels and and have like an idea of how they might react, but uh, but also being able to predict that and keep up with them. Um, and then the other really cool feature that Honestly, I think Swift really needs is this handicap feature, uh, which is, it makes for phenomenal racing. And even to this day, like I haven't experienced anything quite like that.
0: Yeah, uh, handicap mode. Uh, we'd gotten a couple requests from users uh, for like, it was like a dad who wanted to race his daughter or some friends or a husband and wife team that were differently abled. Um, things like that. And they were like, hey, we want this mode. And they would usually suggest, can we just do it by weight? So just scale scale the weaker person by their uh, scale the weaker person's power by their weight. And hey, maybe that'll even it out. But it doesn't because if you're two watts a kilogram and you're against someone who's three watts a kilogram, it doesn't really matter if you scale up because you're lighter. You're still going to be two watts a kilogram. Um, so we had to think about that. And to zero under the hood had always been trying to, like, reward you for, hey, look, you got a personal best for your 20-minute power. you got a personal best for your 30-minute power. And it would it would even put that into the global oh. chat so people could, like, cheer you on if it's like, Andrew did a personal best of 4.1 watts per kilogram for 10 minutes.
1: It was also a bit um, of a carrot where it's like, oh, Art is working really hard because he sent set a 20-minute PV, so I've got to push even harder.
0: Yeah, if you see someone getting the 20-minute PV, then usually you knew that they're about to break and you could go <laughs> chase them. Um, But because we kept track of all these little stats um, for a variety of time windows, it made it fairly easy to go and do um, some analysis on, okay, well, a 20 minute PB of this means a one hour PB of this. Like you could say uh, someone that had a 20 minute personal best of 200 watts, oh, maybe they have an FTP of 150 watts for one hour. And so if you're dynamically generating these FTPs all the time, then what it meant is. You didn't have to go and do an FTP test. Two to zero would just always have an estimate of what your FTP was. And so you could join uh, what we called handicap races. And so a handicap race, uh, if your FTP was 150 watts and you were doing 150 watts, then your virtual person would act as if they're doing 300 watts. Meanwhile, if I'm doing 300 watts and my FTP, which at the time was about 300 watts, uh, then my virtual person would also be doing 300 watts. So now you've got 150 watt FTP person racing. against a 300 watt FTP person and everything is basically identical between them. Like if 150 per watt person attacks, they're going to accelerate pretty hard. And the 300 watt person will have to do like 900 watts to compensate. And uh, we didn't entirely expect how well this was going to work. But the other nice feedback loop is if you're in a really tough race and you're working really hard, but maybe you sandbagged a bit beforehand and uh, our FTP estimate for you is a bit low. Um, well, if you're working hard in a race, you're eventually going to do a better one. And then the game will re-handicap you dynamically. That's clever. So uh, what ends, ends up happening is we would have like a 40-person race start and you'd have 20 people at the end sprinting for the line. Like all within ten se- five to 10 seconds of each other because everyone from the 65-year-old who has a 60-watt FTP to the pro cyclist with a 250-watt FTP, uh, they're all together at the end. So it would make you work so hard. Um, and that was one, – one of the troubles with it is like, okay, if you're doing a handicap race, you know that you are going to fall off your bike and <laughs> at the end. You're going to get the most amazing workout ever. Uh, but you can't do that every night. It's really, really painful, but we, I, I loved handicap mode and yeah, uh, one other in that list that Andrew had, there were a couple other ones. Um, our workout mode was super basic. Um, you could with great difficulty because I still was not a very good web developer or one at all, um, use a web-based thing to build your workout library, um, And again, because we had been able to do this analysis on uh, how long a person could last, like basically the critical power chart from Golden Cheetah, um, we could say, okay, well, someone with 150-watt FTP means uh, 160 watts for 30 minutes, 170 watts for 20 minutes, uh, maybe 250 watts for one minute. Um, And you could build all these curves, and you could build that curve across many, many different people. And so one of the neat things that we had in workout mode was while you were building your workout, it would dynamically figure out whether your workout is impossible. Because it's always tempting to put in like, oh, I'll do an hour at 105% FTP. It's like, well, no, that's obviously not going to work. But then, uh, much less obviously, sometimes you'll set up an interval set and you're like, oh yeah, okay, 120% for the interval high bit, and then 95% for the uh, rest bit. And it would analyze every possible combination of chunk of interval in your workout and say, ooh, buddy, you're going to have a real hard time from interval five to interval eight because you're going to average six watts a kilogram. And I know that you can only do five and a half watts per kilogram for that period of time. So like, you might want to readjust that workout there. And I I found personally when I would use it that it was actually right. It was almost never wrong. Um, And that's because we could just run backwards and figure out that like okay, if you can do this this for this long, then you probably can't do this for this long. That's
2: fascinating. So, were you plugging in uh, when you used a power duration curve? Um, were you plugging in folks' real maxima? Like, so there's a lot of platforms that are trying to capture that information now and then and then create kind of um, a dynamic rider signature for people. So, say like because everyone's going to be different, right? You can you can pull the stock kind of like the the average population uh, PDC but it's not going to match up to, you know, to you if you've got, you know, if you've got a naturally more, you know, more fast twitch muscle fibers and you're naturally more of a, a glycolytic guy so you may have a little bit more whatever term you want to use for it anaerobic capacity or w prime or, you know, a, a basically ability to generate power above threshold and sustain that 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 power generation generating ability versus someone who is like straight up only endurance very little capacity above threshold. Um, so those people are going to have very different power duration curves. So when you built yours, were you using their actual, like, you know, their PBs from, from the different durations to build it?
0: Uh, no, um, ours was very basic. Like we just used a general one based on our user base. Um, that said, I wouldn't be surprised if most of our user base were probably on the slower Twitch side of things.
2: Yeah. That's most endurance athletes. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting that, that, what you're talking about is something that there are platforms out there that are just dedicated to doing that, to being able to building you a workout. Have you ever looked at exert? I think art, you would really nerd out with exert. I think I, it would be a fun, I
0: think I had heard of exert. Uh, actually, no, I know I've heard of exert. We had uh, tested it a bunch of times with the stack trainers. Okay. Um, but I, I didn't use it too, too much. It did seem kind of nerdly. Um, but what I found as you, uh, make one of these businesses and then go on. is like, I don't want to think too hard when I'm doing my workout anymore. Yeah. I kind of want to just turn my pedals and maybe I win and maybe I don't, but I, uh, the only data I really collect these days is I just see if I beat my critical power chart, my power duration chart, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, exert did seem beat, it, um, from talking to the guy. So we actually, at one of our stack events, we did talk to like, I think the creator of exert and, um, Armando i don't remember his name it was a while ago but it sounded really neat and in particular like what he described sounded a lot like the same as what tdg did but i i really enjoyed these kind of warnings because i'd try and design like some free form workout or just try to keep things interesting and it was always helpful for it to say whoa 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 you aren't going to be able to do that eight (laughs) times you should maybe back it off to seven times
2: yeah yeah again like the the kind of the the i don't want to You know, digress into this because this is a long. This is a this is one of my favorite topics of conversation. We should get a a sports scientist to talk about this. But the 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 big kind of like the black box in this is your ability to recover, and everyone is unique. So that you know, if you're regardless of which system you use, I find that they're 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 not robust enough to really capture everyone's unique abilities, Um, and that is you know when you work above threshold right, and you burn those matches um, and you, you know, deplete your W prime or your anaerobic work capacity, however you measure it, usually in kilojoules, um, then how much time, at what intensity, what's your recovery look like before you can repeat that effort? Right. And that's the real mystery of like, can you do five of these repeats or can you do eight of these repeats? Right. Like how quickly can you recover? And of course the recovery is going to depend on the duration, uh, and the intensity of your recovery periods. So to your example earlier, when you were doing, you know, the classic over under of one hundred five ninety five, obviously at 95% of threshold, you're, you're going to be re- recovering very, very slowly, which is kind of the point of that workout. Um, but some people will recover faster than others. And then yeah. Funny things also happen with like fatigue because, you know, 90 yeah. minutes into a workout like that, you're not recovering at the same rate as, you know, 20 minutes into a workout like that. So yeah.
0: oh, there's it, there's a bunch of other parameters that are unknowable yeah. to the app. It's like, That's how stressed yeah. out are you? How much yeah. sleep did you get? Last oh, yeah, night? yeah, for
2: sure. But even like best case scenario, like metabolically, I think they they don't quite capture recovery well enough, and then there's like the perceived exertion effects, like the psychological your just your desire or or willingness to put yourself through it, even if you're you know even if your mitochondria could churn out enough a t p to make you turn your legs. does your brain want to keep you know that that the its foot on the kind of the mental gas that's yeah, yeah. as it, Andrew it knows, is
0: as as Andrew knows, I'm a bit weak on that when. If someone drops me on like Tour de Juro or Zwift or real life, then I'm like, oh, oh, I guess I'm done then.
2: Oh, that's that's the trick, huh? Yeah,
0: yeah I we, am
1: we eventually did have a race like that, uh, where I finally beat Art and I was very yeah. happy to do that. <laughs> it has been a long time coming.
0: Yeah, I I on that particular race I'd been doing, I don't know, it was a fifteen K run at the end of a triathlon and I'd been doing, I don't know, like four thirty per kilometer, which is pretty decent for me at the time. And then once Andrew passed me, I was walking.
1: <laughs> was that Welland, Andrew? Uh, no, it was actually. So Welland is probably my best ever race. That's the one I thought you were talking Kingston. about.
2: Okay. Oh, um, and no, I
1: think yes. in this particular race, I had a flat tire as well. Um, so on pour, the pour the salt on. Yeah, it it was a very very slow leak, but it was like within the last two or three k of the bike, uh, someone pointed out. He's like, yeah, I think your tires are on it a little low. Um, as, as I was going by, I'm on a hill because um, it was also where the long course and the short course race overlap. And the fun thing about that race is, like, in the bike course is where you would tend to overtake a lot of people. Um, but anyway, it's the, the psychological effect was pretty phenomenal. Um, and this was my first introduction to it because at the time I was using a Kurt Kinetic for a lot of the racing. So, using a speed cadence sensor, or even when I did have a power meter hooked up with the Kurt Kinetic, but I would almost always set my personal bests, whether they were 20 minute PBs or five minute PBs, I would set them on an uphill section or while chasing someone. Um, And it was that extra mental push, even though the trainer itself doesn't know you're going uphill because it was a dumb trainer. um, Your body knows to push and you're, you're chasing that carrot and that extra little mental push and that competition lowers the RPE or allows you to push past a higher point where you would, uh, otherwise in the towel. And yeah, like I know Art would have these workouts. He'd often come to me up to the back and say, yeah, I just got bored. Uh, and then he got a heart rate monitor and it turns out his heart rate was like 178, 180, uh, when he got bored. But, um, yeah, the, the psychological impact is phenomenal.
0: Yeah. They, I definitely determined later that by getting bored, was absolutely just my brain trying any trick it could get to get me off the trainer. <laughs> Stop. Um, but to Andrew's point uh, about the Kirk kinetic and like mentally changing to go up Hills, we had a demo for tour de zero at a bike show and we, Eric had wrangled a local bike club to come ride bikes at the bike show. Um, and we had several people and they were just riding on Kirk kinetics. Cause that, that's what we could get. Uh, We had several people ask us, like, uh, like, how are you changing the resistance on this trainer? Like, we're not. It's just a dumb trainer. But they were convinced that we were changing the resistance on the trainer because they were working so much harder on the uphills in the game. (laughs) And that's even with TDG's, like, underwhelming graphics. But it displayed enough of an uphill that they were like, oh, I'm going to try so hard on this uphill. Oh, man, the trainer is fighting me back. It's like, no, it's not. It's just... Your brain made you work that much harder.
2: Well, if you pushed, you know, if you if you increased your cadence or, or shifted into a harder gear, you'd be working harder on a fluid trainer, yeah. of course, right?
0: But, but right. people would, but they naturally, would naturally, do yeah, they naturally they do would naturally it because, do it, yeah, yeah. They're chasing the AI up the hill or something.
1: Yeah, and so the AI's that was another point I brought in where. Before you hit this critical mass, like it's not really a big issue for Zwift, but maybe the the bigger issue is if you're going on for a free ride in Zwift, finding someone who's a comparable uh, skill level. But the AIs did that for you, and because there were a bunch of different profiles, and ultimately they were fairly simplistic, but they they offered some interesting challenges. So, why did you why did you pursue that? Why did you create those? Uh,
0: yeah, so we had I think the first year we had three really basic ones. Um, Uh, There was Dopey, and Dopey was stupid. He wasn't a doper, although I believe his jersey did have a bunch of needles on it. Um, And the graphics weren't quite good enough that you could tell, but I'm pretty sure the uh, texture for his jersey uh, had a bunch of needles on it. Uh, Anyway, Dopey simply went at whatever wattage he was supposed to. Um, there was Hillman.
2: He was a time uh, trialist. He wasn't a dopey.
0: I know, uh, Hillman was probably more of a time trialist in the best bike split, uh, sense. Cause Hillman would always go like, uh, a variable percentage modifier, but like you might go 5% harder on an uphill and then 5% weaker on the downhill, which is a more efficient way of spreading your power around. So usually like in the first year, I I think, uh, Hillman would generally win, uh, there was Sergi, which would just do like, five seconds on, uh, 30 seconds off. Uh, but the five seconds on would be pretty hard. And because of the drafting, generally if there was a surgery in your pack, you would drag along your pack and you'd have to go and catch up. There'd be a bit of a concertina. And then in I think in 2014, we kind of had all the modern, the the great, the greatest Tour de Giro version, the most definitive. Um, we had uh, Savy and Helpy uh, and Savy would always try to be at the back of your pack. Um, he'd always try to maximize his draft. And then at the end of the stage, at a random point from like, I think, 1% to 9% of the stage remaining, uh, Savy would calculate okay, how much power do I, how many joules do I have left to spend? <laughs> wow. Given how much versus like his FTP. So every every AI rider would have like a certain FTP. So Sevy would say, okay, well, I'm supposed to do 250 watts for half an hour. How many joules below that am I? Okay, I get to spend that over the next two kilometers. And then uh, I think the initial version of Savy didn't have a limit on how high his power level could go. So sometimes <laughs> you'd get to the end of the stage where the Saveys were had been particularly Savy and they just launched at like 3,000 watts.
2: Um, awesome.
0: And then the helpies were literally the opposite. They were your domestiques. So they would always try and stay at the front of the pack. And in fact, the helpies would uh, preferentially try to choose a human player to stick in front of. So if you were so lucky to have a helpie decide to help you, um, you could accelerate. And it would accelerate more and try and stay in front of you and keep you in its draft.
1: I, I remember uh, trying to pass some of those. which <laughs> was a challenge.
0: Yes. Um, and then the helpies would also again, being the nearer images of the saveys, uh, they would completely blow up at the end of the stage. So at a random point, between 1% and 9% from the end of the stage, uh, all the helpies would say, okay, how many jewels do I got left in the tank? And so it was a pretty common thing if you were in the uh, chase pack. So if you weren't in the lead pack, uh, you get to like 2 kilometers from the end of the stage and you pack this 20-helpy deep peloton of guys doing like 5 kilometers an hour because the game has calculated that they have no watts left to spend. So they're just coasting <laughs> down the hill or coasting up <laughs> a hill. Um, but yeah, the AIs were interesting. I think when Zwift launched, they actually had uh, the, these ghostly players, but I don't. Um, I am particularly not that uh, aware of how Zwift was in its very early days um, because uh, we were still kind of sort of trying to make Tour de Giro a thing just as Zwift was launching. Um, so we weren't paying that much attention to what particular features they had and mixed with burnout at that point we were like yeah we're kind of done with online racing
1: yeah so it's it's very cool to see these different approaches and even with a big company like Zwift like yes they've got different solutions to some of these problems and maybe one of the solutions is you just hit that critical mass or that um, virtuous cycle where enough people are online at any given point that you can find someone to ride with but uh, I thought it was super creative how you dealt with that. And it was very cool to be actually riding against these people or people, these computers. Uh and and realistic in some respects because they would break up packs and they would cause things to get interesting. And you would have these very definite packs forming of like a couple of riders out front because of the distribution of the, the powers that you would give the AIs. And then you'd have to chase on or bridge out to those people. So it was it was very cool to see the The natural dynamics that resulted in some of these pretty simplistic uh performances but uh it led to a very realistic experience
0: overall yeah so uh i guess some of the listeners might be wondering well wait a minute you keep mentioning oh we stopped burnout Mm. um so uh in any business uh you're gonna have support um
2: I like how uh, you're inter- how you're basically interviewing yourself for the show. You're uh, you're kind of pr- you're 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 moving the uh, the narrative along without any help from your <laughs> from your supposed hosts. And uh, I'm uh, I'm here as a as as one of those hosts just to give you a little hand for that. So thank you
0: and emotional support. And yeah, like it's stuff. my therapy session. I'm just uh, <laughs> here's, here's how it went, guys.
1: This is <laughs> this is some foreshadowing for what's about to come.
2: <laughs> okay, I'm sorry for interrupting. So.
0: Um, in any business, uh, particularly a technical business, uh, you're going to have support. Um, like I had mentioned, like TDGs, uh, user interface wasn't the greatest, but I had gone into this in 2012 with like a very engineering, uh, thought of like, Oh, if I build it, they'll come. And also they'll figure out like how to click the buttons. Like it's not that hard. Geez, Look, I can go click, click, click there. We're in done. Um, Uh, Obviously, this is not how actual successful businesses are run. Um, And to most people who haven't spent thousands of hours making their own game, they're going to be like, this thing's hard to use. Okay, I'm done. Um, Or they contact you at support. And that's fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with contacting support. But from the business side, so it's just two people, me and Eric. And you get just this constant drip, drip, drip of emails and the email is never, Hey man, I had a great ride the other night. Thanks for making this like wahoo. This thing's awesome. Um, it's always, Hey, um, my game crashed halfway through my ride and it ruined my ride. And like, I'm pretty pissed off right now, which I totally understand because as a developer, you have a lot of uh, your workouts ruined by a bug that you made. Um, but then like I, as a developer, you can only test so much before you release it to a slightly wider audience, and then they find more bugs, and you release it to the broader, broadest audience, and suddenly a bug that maybe happens one in a thousand hours—well, that happens every day, and it's impossible to chase down because you don't know like different hardware combinations, uh, different use cases, different uh, computers that they're running it on. Um, so you just get this drip, drip, drip of one hundred percent just uh, this broke this broke this ruined my night this ruined my ride and it's pretty painful and uh, I have seen uh, many people uh, break under the support drip 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 and one of the best things we did early on was we said okay Eric your first year support you got to handle like all these emails because initially it's really exciting like the first couple months, it's like, oh man, people are actually using my thing. Oh yeah, sure, man. I'll wake up at 11 p.m. I'll put in a new build for you and like get this fixed. But after like six or seven months, then it's uh, this grind of, oh, okay, we got got to fix this bug. Oh, we got to fix this. Oh, got to fix this bug too. Oh, well, this person in their kind of weird scenario encountered. It. Okay, we got to fix that. Um, and so you're just getting this constant people telling you that oh, this, this shit sucks like that. Nah. And meantime, like it's not making a ton of money. It's, I still have the telescope that I bought and I use it fairly frequently, but it's like, it's not making you so much money that I'm getting to go out and buy a Ferrari or go on like lots of nice vacations in a year or something. It's, it's just, oh, okay, it bought me my telescope. And then in exchange for that, I'm basically Eric and I are 24 seven, uh, Getting complained at by people, so like just mentally it gets really, really, really tough. And Andrew can definitely confirm that I have a bit of PTSD. If someone sends me a support email, then I'll often ask lots of questions about it before even reading the email because it's uh, I I may actually have PTSD. Um, it's just kind of painful having you open your email in the morning when you wake up and it's twenty emails deep with people's problems. Um, And so that gets tough over time. And then of course, like the big dog in the room is 2014, Uh, might be 2015, when did Zwift launch? Uh, Whenever Zwift launched, we had expected it to launch a year later than that. Um, And we had made, I don't know, like 10 grand each season for the two seasons before Zwift came out. So like, that's a decent chunk of change. And we were hoping for more growth like one more season and more growth and hey that's if not like money to support you on it's uh, a decent chunk of change and like the servers that ran tour de Jura were super cheap they were like 80 bucks a month and i still have them running off my personal credit card for 15 bucks a month because computer technology advanced and gotten cheaper but yeah swift came out and they did i think like six to eight months of uh, a free beta so it's like, oh, I can sign up with this modern thing that all of my friends are on and all the pro cyclists are on and everyone's super excited about it. Or I can go keep using uh, craggy old Tour de Giro um, with its uh, like weird graphics. And at that point, like instantly significantly smaller audience base. Uh, so it's like obviously, oh, OK. So the season that Zwift launched, I think we made half as much money as before. And then I think the season after that, like, we were just done, done. But obviously the servers kept running. I think we made a couple hundred bucks. So it faded away fairly quickly once Zwift was out. But when Zwift launch, launched and said, hey, we got a beta coming out, Eric and I had a meeting. We were like, oh, well, do we do we want to try and fight? Like, we can cut our prices or make it free. Um, what, what do we want to do? And we kind of just said, no, let's, let's just go have lives. Um, so these days, with I think we have one customer that signs up every fall. is a guy that runs a CompuTrainer studio, and I guess he just has a customer base that likes it. Um, the servers are still on for him. Uh, every year, he sends us ninety bucks, which does not—I don't think—quite add up to the server hosting costs. But it's like it's fun to have around, and I use its servers for other stuff every now and then. But yeah, uh, I guess what what kills a not quite successful business is just you just get ground down by support uh too much stick not enough carrot i guess but like also to in our minds we were like that this indoor cycling thing there's no money in this um uh, we were wrong apparently
1: well just just for point of comparison how many hours do you think you put into this as a combination you and eric
0: Uh, we were tracking hours fairly early on and it came out, we got to like 3000 hours and we stopped tracking. So when, uh, I think, I think we stopped tracking because we were like, wait a minute, given how much money we've made at this point, we could have worked at McDonald's and made more and had less stress in our lives. Um,
1: so so that's, that's your usual startup advice for people who are questioning, should I pursue a startup? and your response is no uh well, well, our response not. for tt like <laughs> we
0: we would talk to investors and they'd say this is a very interesting business like what if you had like one percent of the cyclists in ontario paying you a monthly fee and like that that adds up just in ontario um but it's also harder to take the risk of quitting your job like i liked my job at sony i liked my colleagues at sony uh, particularly around that time um And I got to go to California every quarter. Uh, They paid me fairly well. Like, it was a good job. So it's like, okay, well, should I quit that and go make $1,000 a month maybe uh, getting screamed at by these customers whose rides I've ruined because I wrote a bug? And so the answer at that point was no. That seems like it would be a poor choice. Um, But, like... I think if we had pursued investment aggressively and said, "Hey, look, if you guys can keep me from keep me with a roof over my head and fed uh, for a year or two, then and also if we can go hire someone who actually knows what they're doing around graphics, uh, then maybe we could have had a thing that was truly like somewhat competitive with Swift uh, in terms of slickness and UI and website and all that, but." uh, knowing what I know now, like that, that's a very expensive proposition. That's hundreds of thousands of dollars in engineering time to like make what Zwift launched with, which was a very, very slick thing. And they'd kind of been in semi stealth mode for a while. Um, we would frequently get people emailing us and I, I'm pretty sure I've emailed back and forth Eric Min, or at least Eric Min signed up to TDG fairly early. Um, who is the CEO of Zwift. Uh, and so we'd email back and forth sometimes with john mayfield or eric minn sometimes with other people who had just seen john mayfield's like earlier slow twitch posts I'm like man you should talk to this guy because your graphics suck but his graphics are really good um and you guys could like combine forces so eh, i don't know looking back I, I i don't know what i would advise young me to do um it would be obviously a very big risk to go okay quit your job and go hunt down investment and try to make money doing this thing that you've tried for two seasons and not made all that much money. Um, And that there are fearsome competitors around like trainer road was already very big at that point. And so Eric and I were always scared that trainer road was going to launch uh, online racing and Nate uh, trainer road. Nate had said in like a podcast that Eric had found or an interview. It's like, Oh yeah, we want to, we really want to do online racing. And I guess they never did. Uh, but we always thought trainer road was going to be the big risk because they had enough engineering time and talent that they would be able to turn something out that could help do what I could do in my spare time
2: and despite all of this you uh you know d- despite all of the, all of this experience and and potentially undiagnosed p t s d you and Andrew decided to to go out and start stack huh? so it clearly it wasn't enough of uh enough of uh you know uh deterrent for you.
1: There were there were initial discussions about who would handle support, and support <laughs> continued to break my soul. And then, uh, subsequently, our other business partner Shane Soul, and then uh, our now wife Erica. <laughs> so there's a trail of wreckage that uh, support has left behind. So for anyone listening, like that's actually a really good point that I want to make. Is like when you are emailing people, even if you've had frustrations, remember that there are real people on the other line, people who have or the other end of the line, like people who typically pour their heart and soul into things, or even at a big company, there's still real people who are answering your emails. Um, so I know we would always be really appreciative of getting a response from someone or getting feedback from someone. First of all, this was super rare, but someone saying, Hey, I just wanted to let you know, I like your product or program, and then just leave it at that. That was a rarity. But uh, the, there would be other people who would, um, they would email and say, Hey, look, uh, you know, I've got this problem, but, um, you know, I'd appreciate it if you can take a look It, you know, it caused me some problems, but they were really polite about it. And that is also quite motivating having that, uh, that kind of interaction where you get these positive people. It's the, the people who just start yelling and screaming that are the, the, uh, the soul destroying ones.
0: Yeah. Support. Do not underestimate how difficult support is. Even if you hire someone to do it, um, at the end of the day, that, if that person doesn't know the answer, they're going to have to come ask you. So, um, and I don't know, it's not even like, it's not a problem that you can just solve by throwing a bunch of money at it. Um, There are just psychological bits to it. Be aware that if you start a business, you're going to have a constant treadmill of people telling you that, hey, this thing sucks. Um, Even like giant companies like Apple, there's people out there that just despise Apple. Um, Totally. And like, if you're an Apple engineer, you probably get to hear all the time that, oh, this, why the hell would you do that? So it's a, yeah, it's an interesting problem um, to have to solve is just be aware of how much support hurts. And I do remember one of our discussion points before Stack was like, well, I had done Tour de Jure, which got to like, I don't know, 30 grand of revenue or so. And so I actually, I did have advice to dispense. And I believe one of my main pieces of advice was like, watch out for support. It really sucks. And I should also highlight, like when Andrew says soul crushing, he's not joking. At various points throughout, well, through de zero's career, like at one point, I just hung, basically hung up on a call saying, no, I'm, I'm done. Sorry, I'm just tired. Um, but throughout Stack as well, like at various points, people that were doing support just like said, no, I can't do my email today. I just can't they were truly just broken and sad and stressed out all the time. Because if you, let's say you put off answering an email, I'll still waiting for you tomorrow, but now the customer's angrier. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess there's two parts of that is one, if you can make a perfect product that never fails in any way and is super easy to use <laughs> or two, just be aware that this is a problem that you will have to solve.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's very good advice. Um, and it's, I think something that probably everyone who's gone through a startup has experienced in one way, shape, or form.
0: Yeah. Like, even if you're 99.5% good, once you have 200 customers, then you're going to have a problem. Once you have 20,000 customers, then you have 100 problems.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And 99.5% is a very high bar, obviously.
0: Yeah. So low, low probability events happen when you have lots of people, lots of customers. So And then they become even more difficult to debug as well because it's like, oh, this is a one in 10,000 problem that only happens just through sheer chance. There's not a chance in hell that you as a developer are ever gonna debug what happened and like catch it in your debugger because you'd have to sit there for 10,000 hours. Um, So yeah, not only do the bugs get more numerous, but they also get more difficult.
1: So I think this has been a very interesting look into what it takes to to build a company from the ground up, and and an idea that um,
0: a very small company,
1: <laughs> very small company, but uh, the idea was definitely there. So seeing how successful Swift has been, um, there's definitely different choices that could have been made or different paths that could have been followed, and and whether or not you were the ones to take it to fruition, that's you know another discussion, but. Um, but certainly the idea was very solid and there's some stuff, still some things there that you had implemented, like the handicap mode that we haven't seen anywhere else. And it's still something that's a ton of fun. Like we've occasionally had rides on another web-based platform that you developed and had so much fun with that, even with four eyes employees. So it's, it's really cool to see that there's still some relevance for a lot of that work that you put in, even though it didn't pan out the way you'd initially expected. Um, it did let you learn quite a bit and got you ultimately i would say into the cycling industry Uh,
0: yeah i don't know what the takeaway really is from this podcast because it's like (laughs) for me i i have a little song i sing which is like don't start a business but (laughs) at the same time like people should it's it's challenging and interesting and if you've got a good idea maybe it'll make you very rich Um,
1: and i would treat it as uh, just these are the takeaways that people can learn from um because you coming into stack you had a lot of these lessons and advised a lot of good things and i've talked to other people since then about startups and said like oh these are the mistakes we made at stack do this this and this and it it continues to build you build up that experience and that uh that repertoire of skills and uh and just different things that you can add
0: yeah it's kind of like people complain about ceos that bankrupt five their first five companies, but then are successful at their sixth, it's like, oh, why does this guy keep getting hired? Um, to so on one hand, I totally agree. Like if you've bankrupted five companies that you were hired to run, then yeah, maybe you shouldn't be around anymore. But at the same time, I can e- also see why that sixth company hires you because they're like, look, this guy has learned five different ways to do it wrong. Mm-hmm. Therefore, he's not going to make those five mistakes again. Um, it's definitely a learning experience Uh, even on the unsuccessful side. And that's another interesting point is that often when you're starting a business, a lot of the business advisors are the successful people. They're the people that started the company and it got the $50 million revenue and then they sold it. Now they live in a nice cottage in Muskoka. Um, You notice that there's a paucity of advice from people that started and then failed because well they don't get hired by the business advice centers because well you you failed. We want the guy that succeeded. We want to know what worked to succeed. But it is quite important to know all the ways that you can fail. Yeah, that's that's good advice.
1: Yeah, no, that's
2: that for sure. Absolutely. And if nothing else it's uh you know, it's it's a really interesting peek behind the curtain of uh of something of a you know uh, a market that is now so ubiquitous to the the yeah. serious and semi-serious cyclist right everyone knows with trainer road everyone's used it um, so it's it's uh, it's really it's really fun and you know i think just just as a narrative it's an interesting t- it's an interesting story to listen to so even if uh even if our listeners don't walk away with you know a new way to uh to determine their threshold power i think this is uh an interesting conversation from just uh you know the history of the tech yeah
0: here's how to not make a hundred million dollars
2: there's a lot of ways to do that <laughs> well there's a lot yeah. of story <laughs> yeah yep yeah, for sure i know. Um, okay, I think this is a good place to wrap up. I don't know if you've been watching. My uh, my download f- file size for just me right now is is 1.0 gigabytes. I think that includes video, um, and so I'm obviously not going to be pulling that down on my little laptop, but it's, um, yeah, this is a, a great place to finish. Art, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing your not always super pleasant story, to you anyway, uh, with, with us and with the listeners. Well,
0: thanks for letting me send. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe maybe we can Anytime, uh, have
1: you on to have another chat about what goes into the flight and even the Halcyon Smart trainers, because that's been an interesting development process as well. So there's, I think, a lot of interesting tidbits. There's a lot of proprietary stuff, but interesting tidbits you could share
0: as well. Yeah, the flight was quite the challenge to make. Um, it'd be interesting to talk about it.
2: Okay. um, With that, thank you very much, Art, once again. And listeners, thank you as always for listening. And uh, if you like the show, do rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. Hit subscribe, tell your friends, and uh, consider supporting us financially on Patreon as well. And of course, those links are going to be in the show notes. Thanks for listening, everyone.